Great job. I'll tell you, if you uh, missed out on our Night of Hope, that was one of the songs in the Night of Hope. They did a wonderful job. Miss Sheila always does a great job singing and always love to hear the choir. They did a marvelous, marvelous job uh, with so many songs. I'll tell you, uh, there was one song that got stuck in my head for about three days. I don't know if it got stuck in your head, but maybe I'll get it back in there. Look who just checked in. I'm going to tell you, the one the kids sang, I just, it kept repeating in my head for like three days, and I'm like, get out of there. So, but uh, it was awesome. The musical was great, and we praise the Lord for it. Well, let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer uh, before we get started in his word this morning. Father, thank you that you are the epitome of joy. You are what brings us joy in this life. We thank you for all that you do. Thank you for all that you continue to do daily among us. God, we know that we're in your hands and that you constantly take care. We ask now that you be with us as we go into the study of your word. I ask for a couple of things this morning. Lord, first I ask that you remove me out of the way, that you increase and I decrease, that you speak through me and let it be your words and your words alone that are spoken to your people. But then I also pray for your people, God, that you would give us ears to hear from you, Give us eyes to see and a heart to receive this morning. I pray that we see such a tough topic in Scripture, but something that needs to be addressed, something that needs to be talked about, and something that needs to be dealt with. So please be with us as we go into the study of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As you heard from Brother David, we are going to be having a one-day revival in a couple of weeks. So I thought, Lord, what... In the world, can I preach for two weeks? I don't know of too many pastors that have a two-week sermon series, right? They're usually anywhere between five to six weeks. And so I began to pray, and God led me to a little book in the New Testament by the name of Jude. So if you'll open your Bibles to the book of Jude. The book of Jude is a book that is one chapter long. It's 25 verses, but it deals with a very, very important topic. We'll spend two weeks in the book of Jude, but it deals with a topic of apostasy. In fact, the Jude is an author who's trying to really warn the people. He is telling them to beware. And there are a lot of things we understand we need to beware of. We need to beware of false religions that are out there. There are many false religions. There are many religions out there that were created by man. In fact, one of the verses in here kind of deals with how many of religions are started found in the book of Jude. And so there are many false religions out there. But one of the things that's a little bit harder to perceive are false teachers. And the reason why it's harder to perceive false teachers is not too many people really know the entirety of the truth of the Word of God. So sometimes they don't know when they're being taught falsehoods. And so it's important for us to understand and know the Word of God so that we know when false teachers appear, we can say, that is not scriptural. That does not go according to the Word of God. But one of the greatest difficulties and one of the hardest to find sometimes are those that are called apostates. Now, a lot of people say, well, what is an apostate? An apostate is one who claimed one thing at one time but has turned from that claim. In other words, it would be somebody who at one time claimed to be Christian but now claims that they're no longer a Christian. 
So many denominations try to define and help understand what that means. They simply imply that, well, it means they lost their salvation. Well, I disagree with you because the Bible tells us very clearly that, go, that those that God has called and those that he's justified, he's going to glorify them. In other words, they're in his hand, they're kept in his hand, and he will not lose any of them. And so, no, it can't be that. What it does infer is what 1 John Chapter 2 and verse 19 tells us, they went out from us because they were never of us. So many people say, well, wait a minute. They, they looked the part. We, we saw them pray. We saw them get baptized. We saw something within them. Well, yes, I understand what you're saying, but Jesus told a parable of the four soils, if you remember that parable. It's easy to depict what number one and number four are. Number one is very easily that one that it's cast upon people who totally reject the gospel and you see nothing good out of them. We know that they're unbelievers, but the last one is one that fell on good ground and sprouted some 30, 60, and 100 fold. And we say, yes, that's a Christian, so we know who that is, but it's the middle two souls that often get disputed and are often Oftentimes misunderstood. The soul that the seed that falls on the soil that is thorny ground, and the seed that falls on the soil that's rocky ground. But you'll notice in both of those, something sprouts up. Right? It looks the part. It looks like it's going to be fruitful. It looks like it's going to be good. But then what happens? The rocky soil, it shows that it has no depth and it dies off, showing that it was unfruitful and wasn't truly a child of God. The other one is that it gets choked out by the world, wants to go back to the things of the world. And because they're choked out by the world, they only prove they were never a child of God. That's the truth. And there are many apostates within the church. You'd be amazed that there are people that come to church that are apostates, but their entire desire is set on one thing. Not only to say that they're unbelievers, but to also try to draw other people away from the truth. And Jude says we must deal with these people. So if you've got your Bibles, again, we're in the book of Jude. It's one chapter. It is the book just before Revelation. And we're going to begin in verses 1 to 4. We're going to look at three ways that Jude warned the church of apostasy. In verses 1 to 4, he alerted them to the apostasy. Verse 1 says, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Now, he begins his book kind of like a dear so-and-so, right? But in biblical times, they would begin with their own name. And so we find that the author of the book is Jude. Now, it's interesting because this is a shortened version of his real name, which is Judas. Now, here's the thing. There are many Judases in the Bible, in fact, there, were a, there was a Judas that was the son or brother of John. There was a Judas that was Judas Iscariot, the betrayer. But then there was also a Judas that was the half-brother of Jesus. And it is that Jude that we're talking about here. Now, understand, if you had a name of the betrayer, you probably want to change your name too, right? So he changes it to Jude so as not to be inferred as Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus. Now, it's interesting how he defines himself. He says, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, we know that he was a half-brother of Jesus. He was the son of both Joseph and Mary, whereas Jesus was just the son of Mary and the son of God. Jude was the son of Mary and the son of Joseph. And so we find that he doesn't claim to be a half-brother, but he claims to be servant. Why? Because just as Mary 
and his brother Judas and his brother James and any other half-brother or any other cousin or any other relative, they had to come to Christ as Savior as well. Every one of them, even Mary, had to know Jesus as her Savior, not just as her son. She needed salvation too. So he brings that out. He understands I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. First and foremost, I follow him. That's funny because before Jesus was crucified, they didn't follow him. They mocked him. They mimicked him. They made fun of him. They provoked him. They did all kinds of things. But after his resurrection, Judas as well as his brother James and others came to know the Lord. But then it says this. He says, and brother of James. Now, James is the one who wrote the epistle of James. That was his brother. James was also known as the leader of the church of Jerusalem. And so now Judas is trying to really define and tell you who he is so that they'll pay attention and they'll listen. But I love what he says. He says, to them that are sanctified by God the Father. You know, understand that sanctification is the second step of your salvation When you give your life to the Lord, you become justified. In other words, if you were to die at the moment that you chose to give your life to the Lord, you would receive heaven because you've been justified in Christ. You have been given a brand new life. It is not your righteousness that you attain, but it is the righteousness of Christ that comes over you. So if you were to stand before God, you would stand before him as Jesus because you have his righteousness robed around you. That is your justification. Sanctification is that second stage. It is the stage between justification and glorification. Glorification happens when you die, when you finally have arrived, when you receive that perfect body and sin no longer has its hold on you. Sanctification is that process from coming to know Christ to the moment that we go to be with Christ. We are constantly being made holy, turning from our sin, being given a different life. He says, so I'm writing to those that are in the process of being sanctified. I'm writing to the true church, and look at this, I love this, and preserved in Jesus Christ. You know what the word preserved means, right? It means to be what? To, to not decay. In other words, your relationship is preserved in Christ Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14 tells us that you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. In other words, he don't let go of you until it's time to go. And then you're transformed and you're changed eternally. He has preserved you, he has kept you, and he will keep on keeping you is what Jude is saying here. He says, and call mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. But now he deals with the apostates beginning in verse 3. Beloved. When I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. In other words, the idea of contend is to agonize for it, to fight for it, to defend it. Because there are many people that are going to creep in that are going to try and change what God has already done. In the book of Galatians, Paul says it this way in Galatians 1.9. As we said before, so say I now again. If any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye received, let him be accursed. You can't change the gospel. The gospel message is unchangeable and it is unending. 
It is founded upon Jesus Christ who died for your sins, who died for my sins, who was resurrected from the dead three days later. And it is through grace by faith that you are saved, not of works, lest any man should boast. It is all through Jesus. It has nothing to do with you. It was all performed on the cross. You were saved by placing your faith in him and the act that he did for you. You cannot change the gospel. If you change the gospel, you have no gospel at all. If you add to grace, it is no longer grace. He makes it very clear. You can't change the word of God. Very simple. Jude goes on in verse 4. He says, for there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord and our Lord Jesus Christ. They have crept in unaware. You know why they've crept in unaware? It's because we don't recognize how important it is to truly be saved. I want you to listen to Matthew 7, beginning in verse 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. You get that? Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord. Here's the thing. It is easy to claim to be a Christian. Anybody can claim it. Here's the thing. We walked around Honduras and we asked people, what do they think it takes to go to heaven? Why? Because you could ask them the simple question, do you believe in Jesus? Are you saved? Are you a Christian? And you know what people say? Yes. Then you ask them, well, what do you think it takes for a person to go to heaven? And they'll go, well, I have to work and I have to obey the commandments. That's the furthest thing from the gospel. That's not it at all. And yet they claim to be Christian. Here's the thing. You can go around America and ask them the same thing. You know that 75% of America will claim they're Christian? Because they're American. Woohoo! Can I just tell you something? You don't get to go to heaven and go, born in the USA, God let me in. It ain't going to work that way. You can't hold on and say, well... My grandma, she had a great faith. He's, he's going to look at you and go, well, that's good for grandma, but not good for you. But mom and daddy, they served in the church. Good for mom and daddy. That doesn't help you. It's all a matter about having a relationship with Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. If you declare him as Lord, you have to live that he is the Lord of your life. He says, who are those that call him Lord? The only ones that are going to enter in are those that follow the will of God. In other words, those who really believe he's Lord, they want his will for their life. And they want to obey it. They want to abide in it. Now, here's the thing. A lot of people look at the book of James and they say, oh, well, James is trying to teach that it takes works to be saved. No, James is trying to teach us when he says faith without works is dead. He was trying to teach us that, guess what? Our faith has something it produces if it's real. A dead faith, you can sow it in the ground all you want. You can take a seed that's dead and sow it in the ground all you want. But if the seed is dead, it will bear nothing. 
But if you plant the seed that is alive and you water it, you fertilize it, you work on it, it'll grow. Same with your relationship with Christ. If you are a Christian, you will fertilize that relationship. You will water that relationship. You will work on that relationship because you want to get closer and closer to God. You want the will of God. But the sad thing is there's going to be people that claim to be Christians that one day are going to stand before God and he's going to say, depart from me. I didn't know you. I don't know you. How sad if one of them is you. You see, it's easy to claim it. It's another thing to be living it. But here he says, these men have crept in unawares. When we had a rental house in Mount Olive, Alabama, we began to notice a little something. We, we kind of got up in our cabinets one day and we kind of noticed this kind of cocoon-like thing in our cabinets. And we're like, what in the world? Now, we were renting this house, and this had obviously been going on a lot longer than before we rented it. We didn't really go and check out the basement like we should have. But we found out there were termites in the house. And it wasn't until we put some dishes in the cabinets, and it wasn't until we went into the basement that we saw all these termite lines all over the walls. And all I could think is they crept in unnoticed. You see, same thing can happen in the church. An apostate can creep in unnoticed. And if we're not careful, we won't know them until it's too late. You see, the way you can know who an apostate is is by knowing the truth of the gospel. By knowing who is living it by their fruits. Here's the thing. If somebody tries to get you to go down a path that is not proclaimed by the word of God, just go ahead and know they're more than likely an apostate and they're trying to draw you away. If somebody gets you into a gossip corner in church, just know they're trying to drive you away. I'm going to tell you, if we just put gossips in their place, we'd end a lot of problems, wouldn't we? We'd end a lot of problems in churches. But here's the truth. Only an apostate tries to drive a wedge into the church. Only an apostate tries to cause dissension in the church. But here's what God says to those apostates. Before of old ordained to this condemnation. In other words, here's where apostates will find themselves. They'll find themselves standing in judgment before God and eventually in a hellfire burning forever. Now, I don't say that with pleasure. I don't say that with desire. I say that so that you might get prepared so that you're not one of them. But look at what he says. He says, they turn the grace of our God into lasciviousness. Let me tell you something. We're saved by grace, absolutely. It is but by the grace of God that any of us are saved. But he makes it very clear. Romans chapter 6, someone comes to Paul and says, Shall we continue in sin that grace might abound? In other words, the ideal in the Roman church was, hey, the more sinful we are, the more gracious God looks. That sounds good, right? We just keep sinning. God looks great because he shows more grace to the most sinful of people. It's like those people that come up here and they give their testimony and they've been hooked on drugs and they've been in prostitution. And they've been through all these things. And a lot of people in the church sit back and go, man, I wish I had a story like them. Can I tell you something? I don't. Now, I praise God he brought them from that, and I praise God that they have a story, but I have just as amazing a story because God's grace can save from a little sin to a lot of sin, and here's the truth of the matter. Those of you who think you have a little sin, you're wrong. You got a lot of sin. Just may not be as heinous as some sins we think are, but in God's eyes, it's all the same. 
You see, here's the truth of the matter. When God is talking about this here in Scripture, when Jude is trying to help us understand, he says people are turning the grace of God, and Paul simply says this to them. No, certainly not. In other words, if you've been crucified with Christ, if you've buried that old life, don't go back to the old life. Don't try to unhinge the grace of God. Don't try to bear weight on the grace of God. Don't try to put it to the test. Just simply know you've been saved, you've been changed, and don't go back. That's what Jude's trying to say as well. But he goes on, he says, and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something. If you deny God before men, he will deny you before the Father. You can't do it. We must trust in our faith and our grace in Jesus Christ. So we see he alerted them to apostasy. Number two in verses five to seven, he gave examples of apostasy. Look with me in verse five. I will therefore put you in remembrance Though ye once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. He begins with the first example of apostate Israel. God delivered the people of Israel from a great burden in Egypt. In fact, he brought ten plagues down on the Egyptians so that they would force the Israelites to leave. And certainly that's exactly what happened. He forced them to leave. They got out of there. They went to the Red Sea. God parted the Red Sea, brought them through that. God gave them manna from heaven, gave them water from a rock. God supplied all their needs. He defeated their enemies. And then in Numbers 13 and 14, they get to the promised land. They're on the doorstep of the promised land. And they send in 12 spies to spy out the land, to see if God has told them everything that's true about the land. And certainly he had. Those 12 spies come back. Ten of those spies say, you know what? We don't need to go in. It's too dangerous. We're like grasshoppers, and they're like giants. They'll crush us. They'll destroy us. We don't need to go in. But Caleb and Joshua... Oh, no. Caleb and Joshua said, oh, no, 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 no. The God who has been with us is the God who will go before us, and he will defeat our enemies, and we must go in. The sad thing is, is Israel rebelled and refused to listen to God and failed to go in. And you know what God did? God caused them to go into the desert, and they wandered for 40 years. Please understand, they didn't wander in the desert for 40 years because they were lost. They wandered in the desert for 40 years because they rebelled. They refused to be obedient to God. That's it. They were in the desert for 40 years because God would not deliver them. Even when after they said, hey, you know what, we'll go in. And they went to go fight and they got beat down by the enemy. Why? Because God was not with them. You say, well, what's the point? The point is simply this. They failed to believe. They failed to trust. They failed to do the plans that God had laid out for them. And that's exactly what apostates do. They refuse to do the will of God. The second example of apostasy in verse 6 is the apostate angels. And the angels which kept not their first estate but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness under the judgment of the great day. Now a lot of people say, okay. So he's got to be talking about the very first rebellion. A lot of people don't realize that the story of Satan and his fall and the angels' fall is not found in the book of Genesis, but it's actually found in the book of Isaiah chapter 14. And it is there that we're told that Satan thought that he was the morning star, thought he was something of a great importance, and he decided to try to usurp the throne of God. He wanted to be number one, and he took many angels with him. In fact, Revelation 12 teaches us that a third of the angels went with Satan to rebel against God, and when they rebelled against him, God slapped them around and cast them out, and it was over for them. Now, here's the thing. A lot of people have this mindset that Satan and his angels are in hell right now, but that's not true. 
I know that'll just blow your mind because you've always been taught that. He's not there right now. In fact, he's a roaring lion, Peter says, seeking whom he may devour. He's roaming this world. Now, I promise you, he's seeking for people like Billy Graham. I mean, he's, those are the guys he wants to contend with, the big guys. But his demons are out there contending with other people. So then what can this be? Because he says that they're reserved in everlasting chains. Well, more than likely, this is a depiction from Genesis chapter 6 that oftentimes is overlooked. But in Genesis 6, we see a great rebellion that is performed by the angels. Genesis 6, verses 1 to 4. Listen to this. And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God, the angels, saw that, or actually the, the demons at that time, saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wise of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man for that. He also is flesh, yet in days shall be 120 years. There were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them. The same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. In other words, what took place is the demons possessed man, impregnated the women, and tried to create a different race to defile the human race. This is exactly what took place during the time of Genesis. This is why the flood came about. There was such sin and such destruction, such distraught, such willingness to get away from God. They tried to create their own race. You say, well, why is that important? Because if they created their own race and they changed the entirety of the human race, the Messiah could not have been born. This was Satan's plan from the beginning to destroy God's plan that he always had to bring about redemption in the land. Well, what did God do to those demons? Well, he chained them up according to the book of second peter and he has kept them in everlasting chains there are some demons that still roam free but those that were a part of the genesis 6 have been chained up in everlasting chains until the day of judgment then he gives us the third example the apostate gentiles verse 7 even as sodom and gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh are set forth an example suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Isn't it amazing that Sodom and Gomorrah had a chance to turn? Isn't it amazing? Remember Abraham's plea for Sodom and Gomorrah because his nephew Lot was there? God, if you find 50 righteous, will you destroy them? No, for 50 I will not. What if you find 45? No, I won't destroy it for 40. 40, no. 30, no. 20, no. God, what if you find 10 righteous People, will you destroy it? For ten, I will not destroy it. That very night, these two angels go into the home of Lot, telling Lot to flee to get out. Because the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is so rampant. It's so vast. And here's the sad thing. Even on the day when those two angels went in to bring, the, to bring them out, the men of Sodom and Gomorrah showed up at the door of Lot. Give us those two men. We want to lie with them carnally. Their homosexuality had become so rampant. You see, he uses the word in Jude 7, strange flesh. You know why it's considered strange flesh? Because it was always considered a sin. And guess what? Even today, it's still a sin. It's still a sin. The book of Leviticus says that a man shall not lie with a man as he lies with a woman. Book of Romans tells them that God gave them over their depraved minds so they sought after strange flesh, men with men and women with women. 
In the book of Corinthians, it says God had delivered them from homosexuality, and any who practice such sin will find themselves in eternal fire. God doesn't play around. Homosexuality is a sin, and it was very rampant, very rampant in the, in the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. Not only does he use the word of strange flesh, but he uses the word of fornication, which is sex outside of the marriage bonds. He says, guys, we can't perform that. We can't do that. It's wrong. It's sinful. He says there was so much sexual sin going on in the land, God brought about their devastation. God brought it down upon them. Here's the thing. Here's what people will try to tell you. People will try to tell you that God's grace is okay with their sin. It is time that we stop excusing sin. And it is time we call sin, sin, plain and simple. I'm so sick of watching television shows that try to epitomize that homosexuality and any other sin is okay. They say, oh, well, it's new love. No, it's not. It's lust. It is wrong. It is against the word of God, and God will not stand for it. God won't stand for any sin. I'm telling you, the problem we've got is we watch the news outlets, and we see all the garbage that's going on in our land, and we sit back silently saying, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. It is not okay. Enough is enough, and it's time for Christians to declare that sin is sin. Plain and simple. If God called it sin back then, it's still sin today. It doesn't change the fact. It doesn't change over time. And apostates want to change the rules. They want to change the word. They want to change what God says. Let me tell you something. My God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's unchanging, and so is his word. We've got to be careful of the examples that are out there. But lastly, he gave characteristics of the apostasy. Look with me in verse 8. Likewise, also, these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. But these speak evil of those things which they know not, but they know naturally as brute beasts in those things they corrupt themselves. Likewise, also, these filthy Dreamers. Can I tell you that that's where most false religions begin is fake dreams? That's where the Mormons began. That's where the Jehovah's Witnesses began. That's where the Muslims began in false dreams. Most man-made religions come from man. They come from man because they come from their dreams and their desires to be great and to make a name for themselves. And every one of them, if you'll notice, they almost put their names up there with Jesus and they're nothing but false prophets. The Bible declares if you speak one falsehood and it does not come true. And I'm here to tell you, there were a lot of prophets that were talking about predictions for this election. Can I tell you, we just met a whole bunch of false prophets, didn't we? Every one of them, oh, I declare this day, I declare this day, I declare this day. They miss it by one second. It's their false prophet. So a lot of those preachers are out there that made their claims. They need to shut up, close their Bibles, and exit their churches because they're liars. It's plain and simple. The Bible declares them as false prophets. One false prophecy. Deuteronomy tells us that. One thing. They're done for. Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 to 5. But look at what it says. It says they defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignitaries. Now, let me tell you something. I am all for authority. I believe the Bible makes it very clear that we are called to respect authority. 
Romans chapter 13 tells us to respect authority. But let me tell you something. There's a final authority. There's an ultimate authority. And his name is Jesus Christ. That's the authority he's speaking of here that they despise and turn from. Let me tell you something. I believe in listening to the government as long as it doesn't go against the word of God. But when they begin to step over the line, it's time to defy them, to stand against them, and stand on the Word of God. Plain and simple. But here he's talking about they speak evil of the dignitaries. They're speaking evil of the Lord. They're speaking evil of Jesus. But look at this. Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses. Now you think about this. I hear people all the time saying, I'd love to stomp the devil in the ground. You need to have a little bit more respect. I know that'll blow you away, doesn't it? What do you mean, show more respect? Let me tell you something. He's a whole lot more powerful than you are. If Michael the archangel would not contend with him, and Michael the archangel was the head of God's army, he was basically second in command behind the Trinity. He controls the armies. He follows the will of God. If he wouldn't contend with Satan, who do you think you are? Would not contend with him about the body of Moses. You say, what do you mean? Wouldn't contend with him about the body of Moses. Why? Because nobody knows where Moses is buried. Deuteronomy 34, 5 and 6. We don't know. You know why I think God did that? Because he believed that the people of Israel probably would have turned it into an idol. That they probably would have worshipped. That's exactly what Satan wanted. Was for them to worship Moses instead of worshipping God. Worship the one who brought them out of Egypt. To worship the one who took them to the promised land. He wanted that. But you know what? We, many believe that Michael was the one that was given the honor of burying Moses, and that's why there was contention between the two. We don't know that because there's no scripture stating that. But many believe that's what it was. Whatever it was, they did not contend because Michael says what? He durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. Let me tell you something. If you're ever tempted by Satan, don't stand on your own two feet. The best way you can rebuke Satan is to say, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I command you, Satan, to leave me alone. Because it comes through his power, not yours. It's his power, not yours. But look at this. He says, but they speak evil, those things which know not, but they are naturally brute beasts. In other words, they're dumb animals that cannot even speak reasonably. They believe they are on the path of righteousness, but they are far from it. Look at verse 11, though. He gives these... Three men, examples, woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the area of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Kor. He gives three men, Cain. We all know the story of Cain going back to Genesis chapter 4. The instance he's talking about here is when Cain and Abel brought their offerings before God and God honored Abel's offering but did not honor Cain's offering. And a lot of people say, well, why is that? Well, there's possibly two reasons why God didn't honor Cain's offering. One, it was either because he didn't bring of the first fruits. In other words, he didn't bring of the best of what he had to offer. Or two, many believe it was because he desired a fleshly sacrifice or an animal sacrifice. And he chose to bring whatever he wanted to bring. Either way, it was not the right offering to bring to God. It was not what God desired. Cain decided to do it his own way. Does that sound like some people? I'm going to do it my way. And God will accept whatever I give him. I pity you if you think God will accept whatever you give him when he's already told you what he requires. God has already told us what he desires, and anybody that follows in the way of Cain will find themselves in great trouble. He says, and he ran greedily after the heir of Balaam. We all know the story of Balaam. We go back to Numbers 22 to 25 and verse 31. The story of Balaam is about a prophet 
a prophet who was enticed to come down and curse Israel, but God told him not to go, and yet he didn't go the first time, but the second time he went back to God. Now, this is after God had already told him, don't go, don't go. He goes and prays to God, and God says, okay, fine, go down. And then what happens? We know he was disobedient because he should have not even prayed the second time. He should have said, you know what? God's already told me I can't go. I'm not going. I refuse to go. I will not do it. Instead, he goes down, and God uses a donkey, right? Rams him into the side, runs him off course, rams him into the walls, and eventually lays down underneath him. And Balaam begins to beat the donkey, and then the donkey speaks. What's amazing is he speaks back to the donkey. But it was all for money. In fact, when Balaam didn't get his way, or when Balak, the king, didn't get his way with Balaam cursing the people of Israel, Balaam came up with another plan. In 31, he said, have them intermarry with the people, and you can bring about dissension from the inside. Again, Balaam wanted to make sure he got his money. He was more concerned about his money than his God. Let me tell you something. If you're more concerned about your money than serving God, you're on the path of Balaam, and it's not good. And then he used the example of Korah. Korah was a rebellious man who didn't like who God placed in authority. Let's just be honest. God is the one who controls who's in authority. Even for our country. That's why I'm not worried about what happens. God knows what he's doing. It may not be what I like, but he's in charge, isn't he? He's still on the throne, isn't he? He's still in control, isn't he? So it doesn't matter who sits in the president's seat. It matters who sits on the throne and he's still there. So here's the truth of the matter. We don't rebel against authority unless it goes against God. The Bible makes that very clear. But Korah rebelled against Moses' leadership. He rebelled because he didn't like that he wasn't one that was chosen to lead the people of Israel. And because of that, God caused an earthquake to open up and swallow him and swallow two other leaders and 250 other men with them. If that wasn't bad enough, it wasn't too far after that, that many more rebelled because of what happened to Korah. And they rebelled again against Moses. And God slew 14,700 people, all because of Korah's rebellion. You don't rebel against God's authority or you'll find yourself in the same place. He finally finishes with some metaphors. We'll look quickly at these in verses 12 and 13. These are spots in your feasts of charity when they feast and you feeding themselves without fear. Clouds they are without water, carried about of winds. Trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. Raging waves of the sea foaming out of their own shame. Wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever five illustrations the first one is they're called hidden reefs now we don't see that in our english translation but where it says these are spots the idea there is they are hidden reefs a hidden reef is a shoreline that is hidden from a boat but you know it when you hit it don't you if you've ever been on a boat and you hit a shoreline you know you hit it he says they're hidden reefs and he says they're hidden reefs in your love feast now here's the thing you want to know what a love feast is i'll put it in modern terms it's a potluck. They had potlucks in biblical times. Did you know that? Everybody brought food to these love feasts as they called them. They would usually have them when they would perform the Lord's Supper. And they'd have these love feasts where they would all sit down and they would eat. The problem was is there were people that had crept in. And they began to defile the love feast. And they said, what we brought is ours and what you bring is yours. You eat. And there were a lot of people that came without food. Go figure, right? You ever seen that happen in church? 
or they bring that one pot of green beans, right? And, but you see that's what's going on here. And he says what? He says, man, you've defiled these love feasts. In other words, you've turned it from anything but love, and you've turned it to be selfish and all about yourself. Then he calls them waterless clouds, Waterless clouds. Look at what he says. He says, they're clouds. They are without water carried about of the winds. You've seen those clouds. You know what a rain cloud looks like, right? You know when it's coming, you're thinking, it's going to rain. And if it passed over you, you'd be like, what happened? What happened? It had the hope of promise, but it didn't perform. That's exactly what was going on with these apostates. They had the hope of bringing comfort and joy, but they brought nothing but confusion and passing on by. He gives them a third illustration. They're fruitless trees. He says, trees whose fruit withereth without root twice dead, plucked up by the roots. Trees that are fruitless. In other words, they're really called autumn trees. They were trees that would be about the time of harvest. You would expect to get something from them. I wonder if you've ever walked up to something expecting to get something from it, like an apple tree, and there were no apples on there, or they were all rotten. You knew it was the time of the harvest, but they had messed up. That's what he's saying here, except these are without fruit. It's kind of like Jesus when he walked by the fig tree and what did he find? No figs. And he cursed it. He's talking about these fruitless trees. And he not only calls them to be without fruit, that they were spiritually barren, but they were twice dead. In other words, they were dead on the inside and the outside. They were dead in the first death, which is the physical death, and the second death, which is the spiritual death. They were twice dead. Dead. And then he says they've been plucked up. In other words, it's divine judgment. Whenever God uses plucking up, Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 10, Psalm 52 and verse 5, it's referring to judgment that will be brought upon these apostates. He uses the term wild winds or wild waves. Verse 13, raging waves of the sea foaming out their own shame. Many of you have probably been to the beach. You see the waters gush up on the shore. And usually when it's foamy, when it's windy, when it's destructive, when it's, when it's hard rains and things like that, it brings a lot of litter onto the shore, doesn't it? It's not useful, it's useless. It brings all of this, all of this junk and debris and filth that ends up being left on the beach. And that's exactly what apostates do. They leave destruction in their path. And the final illustration found in verse 13, they're wandering stars. Reserved the blackness of darkness forever. We call them shooting stars, don't we? You ever seen a shooting star? What happens to a shooting star? We think they're real pretty, but what's happening to it? It's dying, right? It's not a shooting star for any reason other than it's dying. It will burn out. It will go into blackness of darkness forever, and it will die. In other words, here's, what, here's the whole point that Jude is trying to make. If you're an apostate and you continue to defy the faith and you continue to turn away from the faith and you continue to go in the opposite direction of what you supposedly used to walk in at one time, there is judgment that is reserved for you. And I want you to understand, those that have been enlightened will suffer a far worse fate in hell than those that have never been enlightened before. Book of Luke teaches us that. How sad for those that can turn away from what they once held dear, supposedly. I say all that to simply say this. You might say, well, why are we talking about apostates? The reason being is because there are apostates in every church. There are people that every one of us in here know. They may not be in this building today, but we know apostates. We know people who once claimed to be Christians that have walked away from their faith 
because they were never of the faith. And God doesn't tell you to go out there and get them to bring them back into the church. What God would tell you is simply this. Go win them to Jesus, really. Don't waste your time trying to get them back in church. Spend your time telling them the truth of the gospel. Win them to Jesus. Because you can come to church all you want. That's not going to get you into heaven. It is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now I'll say this. If you're mad at what I preached at today, it's because I preached at you. It's that simple. The truth is the truth, though. You cannot claim to be a Christian and not live it. It's just not going to happen. And you will find, and I'm warning you simply this, because the last thing I want is for any one of you one day to stand before God and He say, depart from me, I never Knew you.